It's rare that an admitted serial killer speaks freely and unconstrained. They tend to want control over the conversation, just like when they stalk and kill their victims. But what happens when a noted serial killer starts talking openly to a trusted confidant? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families with the missing and murdered. Join me for part one of a special two-part episode. We're crossing the line. I know she was, I believe, eight years old. Probably the late 80s. Like 88 or something like that, yeah. The voice you just heard is that of a predator, a stalker, a serial murderer. He's trying to recall one of the children he abducted and, I believe, killed. And I want to begin this special two-part episode here because it's my guess he does recall exactly when and where this crime took place and likely even her name. This is a murder he's never been charged with, a case I'll get deeper into later, but let's first go back to when this scumbag was actively hunting and killing. On August 19, 1992, near 9.40 p.m., 20-year-old Lori Deppis pulls into the driveway of her boyfriend Mark's apartment in the 300-block section of West Wilson Avenue in Menasha, Wisconsin. Mark's sister is there along with a friend of his and Lori's. And look, they all know it's Lori. And it's a fair indicator of the time of day this takes place as the extremely loud muffler on her car announces her arrival. I can kind of relate to that. You know, when family and friends talked about that noisy muffler on Lori's gray Volkswagen Rabbit. When I was a child, we knew my father was almost home from work because we could hear the damaged muffler on his Corvair popping loudly as he drove up the block toward our driveway. It was embarrassing, actually. Why in the hell did he never fix that? I will never know. But anyway. I actually know the answer to that. <laughs> you do? I do. I was asking my husband, Brad, who is kind of a secret car guy. I was like, why do some mufflers pop like that? Like that pop, pop. And he said it's because they've taken off their catalytic converter, which contains precious metals, or sometimes they get stolen, these catalytic converters. They contain precious metals, and so they're quite expensive to replace. I, I don't think my father would be considered in that. I don't think he did it for noisy aesthetic reasons to yeah. look cool. Someone might have stolen it or something. I think he was just cheap, and he did not want to replace the muffler. Yeah. That's what I think. Yep. That is Catherine Law, by the way, my Hi. trusted confidant. <laughs> Lori had actually called earlier from her job at the Fox River Mall nearby to say she was heading over. Mark and Lori had met in their mid-teens, but hadn't started dating seriously until a couple of years later in 1991. Mark said they often spoke of getting married one day. He called Lori the love of his life. Mark and the others wait about a half a minute after hearing Lori's car, but she never walks in the door. So Mark steps out onto the small apartment patio deck. He looks down below into the parking lot and he sees Lori's car. 
On the roof of the Volkswagen Rabbit is a styrofoam cup with a straw popping out of the top. The car looks fine. It's not parked askew or hastily as far as Mark can tell. Nothing really seems amiss. Mark then sees Lori's purse and her overnight bag inside the car. It's as if Lori pulled in, got out, put her drink down, and then was summoned away for some reason. Lori is about 110 pounds, 5 feet, 5 inches tall. She is last seen wearing a turtleneck with horizontal stripes, black and white spandex pants, slip-on leather shoes, a silver watch, silver necklace, earrings, anklets, and bracelets. She has brown hair and green eyes and a tattoo of a squid on her right ankle. But where the hell is she? Ten minutes go by. Mark begins to grow increasingly concerned and anxious. This is so unlike Lori. She pulls in, gets out, puts her drink on the roof of the car, and vanishes? It doesn't make sense. After walking around the immediate area with his sister and their friend for about 15 minutes, Mark calls the police. Hours go by. Police are now on scene, going through dumpsters, looking in back alleys, apartment building foyers, asking people in the neighborhood if they've seen Lori. It's interesting to me how quickly they responded to this because, you know, on the one hand, she's an adult, she's driving around, these things, but also she just, like, totally vanished into thin air. Like, you hear somebody come in, you know they're about to walk up the door, and then those steps never come. Yeah, I mean, what if she went around the corner and started talking to a friend and they took off to the 7-Eleven? Totally. Totally. So it is rare that cops are there right away and they're looking for her because we hear all the time on crossing the line, oh, we got to wait 24 hours, et cetera, et cetera. She's an adult. Exactly. And I mean, that's part of what's so scary about this is you can, especially as a woman, just be kind of going about your day and then in a second doing your normal routine, you're just gone. It's terrifying. It it is. And, you know, this is the... 80s, 90s, Midwest, there's a lot of that going on out there at this Mm -hmm. time. But here's the thing, though. Police quickly determined that she left on her own volition. They kind of write this off initially, and this frustrates Lori's family. Totally. But Lori is gone. No one has seen or heard from her now for many hours. It's well into the next morning, and there is no way close friends and family believe Lori would have just left her things in her car and taken off on her own. Right. If you're an adult and you're leaving your life behind, you'd take the car. <laughs> you would. And and yeah. for me, it's the styrofoam cup on the roof. That, that says a lot to me. Mm-hmm. With no indication that Lori has been forcibly taken or kidnapped and the fact that everyone who knew her claims there is no way she would go off with a stranger law enforcement continue to assume it's a runaway situation. They also begin to investigate if this could be a suicide or something to do with their boyfriend, Mr. Mark. For good measure, it's generally the boyfriend or the husband. Am I right? Right. And we've talked about this a bunch on this show, but you know, it bears repeating. I did a little bit of Googling, and according to the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, and this is globally, Six out of every 10 women who are intentionally killed worldwide are murdered by an intimate partner or a family member. And you've got a little bit more breakdown on that as well. 60%. That's amazing. Yeah. Out of all women murdered, the numbers break down like this. 34% by intimate partners, 
24% by other family members, but 42% are murdered by perps outside the family. That's a big number. This is according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, and it's a 2019 study, so it's fairly recent. Those are numbers, you know, you don't want to hear if you're Lori's family. For months, Mark is the only suspect. His sister and friend who were at the apartment that night as well are considered potentially involved. All three take lie detector tests. Lori's mother is on record saying she believes Mark is hiding something. Many townspeople do too. The FBI follows Mark for months after Lori's disappearance. But still, there is no sign of Lori Deppis. And zero indication Mark has had anything to do with it. By all accounts, she has simply dropped off the face of the earth. The one clue, and it might not even be a clue, seeing as the person who served her the drink could have left it, is a single fingerprint on the styrofoam cup. The size of the fingerprint indicates it's likely from a male. Now, we've heard this next part of the story far too many times. Years go by and there is no body, no sign of Lori, and no suspects beyond the boyfriend Mark. After a year, Lori's case turns cold. What else can law enforcement do at this stage? There is literally nothing whatsoever to go on. It's as if she evaporated. In late March 1993, 375 miles southeast of Manasha at Indiana Wesleyan University, freshman psychology major, 19-year-old Trisha Lynn Reitler is working hard on a term paper inside her small dorm room on campus. Around 8 p.m., she decides to take a break. I mean, she's been working hard. So what she does is walk down to what's called Marsh Supermarket, just about a half mile away from where she lives in Bowman Hall. Trisha buys a magazine and a soda. She pays, walks out of the store. Kind of normal stuff. Trisha is well-liked, a model student, and dedicated to her studies. She's five feet, three inches tall, about 100 pounds. She has brown hair and blue eyes. Trisha was said to be wearing a silver ring, a watch with a larger-than-average face, uh, this Native American-style leather strap, and it has these specific Roman numerals. In some ways, Trisha Reitler and Lori Deppis share very similar physical characteristics. I think this is important to note here. Another thing they have in common, Trisha never returns to campus. Somewhere between the store and her dorm, Trisha disappears. About halfway from the store to campus is a basketball court and seven kids are playing hoops at the time Trisha vanishes. They all claim not to have seen anything. As the search begins for Trisha, an alarming discovery is made in a field close to a public swimming pool and an elementary school located between that supermarket and campus. But I'll just say this, it's not Trisha's body. Let's take a quick break and come back to talk about what they found. If you haven't yet, please, we appreciate it if you subscribe to the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Two women are missing. 19-year-old Trisha Lynn Reitler and 20-year-old Lori Deppis. In Lori's case, all we have so far is a soft drink cup with a print on it that may mean nothing. 
And then we have this horrible discovery that is made soon after Trisha goes missing in the field between the store and campus. It's Trisha's blood-soaked jeans, shoes, and shirt. No body. Just those articles of clothing, which indicate, of course, that something terrible has happened to Trisha. We're talking about some of these cases, and a lot of them are out east or they're in the Midwest, and they're just in these tiny towns that you think, I just, I can envision myself leaving campus, walking to the store, walking to the cafe like I did at, you know, my small college in Indiana that I went to my first year of school. And it's just so normal. But these things are even happening in the Midwest. I mean, you're from that area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're from the Midwest. So yeah. Yeah. I, I I mean, I'm looking at these cases out there during the 80s and 90s and it's it's holy shit. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of them. But That's going to fall in line with what we're talking about in this special two-part crossing the line. Yeah. If we're focused on this particular perp whose voice you heard the beginning of the episode, who is suspected in the two disappearances here, I could spend three episodes detailing all the missing and murdered women he is connected to in some way. It really was a dangerous time for young women to be out walking in some places alone with this animal out there preying on women. And you're going to understand this as we go along here. Let's fast forward to September 20, 1993, just about six months after Trisha Reitler went missing. The sister of 15-year-old Jessica Roach, who had gone out for a ride on her bicycle that day, finds Jessica's bike lying in the roadway close to where both girls live in Georgetown, Illinois. This is in Vermilion County, about a three-hour ride west from Marion, Indiana, where Trisha went missing, and about five hours' drive directly south of Menasha, Wisconsin, the place of Lori Deppis' disappearance. So, to go back to an important point you made earlier, Catherine, you see how we're in the same general region of the country, but there are large swaths of landmass separating these particular three crime scene locations. Right, which I'm sure made it really hard for law enforcement to make any sort of connection, especially in those days when they like didn't share information with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's basically impossible, right? You have 500 miles, let's say a 500 mile triangle. Mm -hmm. So you have these different law enforcement agencies and they're not communicating on a daily basis for any reason. In different states. In different states. So Mm -hmm. you would not see a serial offender issue happening at all. Right. Until you did. Right. The bad guy gets the advantage. That's right. Unfortunately, he often does. Jessica Roach's sister finds her bike in the street, but there's no Jessica. And their dad calls police to report her missing. What could be more chilling than a kid's bike lying in the road and the child nowhere to be found? It strikes so deeply at the heart of childhood innocence We've all, I think, rushed down the block on our bike as a kid and dumped the bike on the front lawn of the friend's house, then stepped inside to share something exciting. But a bike in the middle of the street, that tells an entirely different story. Yeah. Jessica Roach dreamt of flying airplanes. She was shy. She loved the film Gone with the Wind. And she was said to always be reading a book. I love that. Dirty blonde hair flowing past her shoulders brown eyes, and a beaming smile, Jessica resembles Trisha and Lori. 
For weeks, Jessica's family waits and wonders. And this is an aspect of having a loved one go missing I think we don't focus on quite enough. I learned so much about this emotional purgatory from doing the first season of Paper Ghosts, my narrative podcast. And what I'm talking about is how families suffer immensely during the time a child is missing. Life literally stops. All you can do is wait and agonize. Any ring of the phone or knock on the door is intense, anxiety-producing, and teeming with horrifying anticipation. Your mind goes right to those dark, terrible places you don't want it to as you think about what could be happening to your child. You know, I've thought of this. For me, there should be some sort of additional charge added to when a perp is caught. Tack it on to account for the pain and suffering you have put a family through as they wait and they wait. On November 8th, 1993, the waiting finally ends. Jessica's decomposed body is found across the Illinois state line in Indiana, Perrysville to be exact. Jessica's body has been mutilated, almost beyond recognition, by a farming combine. A combine is one of those shredding type of tools on the front of a tractor you'd use to cut wheat down or grind it up at the same time. You've seen them. Several sharp blades in a circular pattern, rotating, cutting, and gathering the crop up. Because it has been six weeks since she went missing, it's not possible to determine the cause of death in Jessica's case. But they did discover during the autopsy that she had a broken jaw from likely being struck in the face. There is zero physical evidence on her body or in the surrounding area where she is found. As an investigating law enforcement agency, what you have to go on is, well, in this case, basically nothing. The only thing you know is that Jessica did not wind up under that combine in that field on her own. If we look at the investigative side of this story contemporarily and focus on what we do have, we can now see patterns, similarities in these cases that, in hindsight, I should say, seem too closely connected, at least in theory, to overlook. Right. These girls are similar in both looks and their age. And I mean, you could argue the circumstances surrounding their disappearances are pretty similar as well. So if you're tracking missing girls and murders and you're keeping, say, columns of information, Mm -hmm. it might pop out. So I'm with you there. Right. The circumstances are big for me. I would say, too, that if we're profiling a potential perp, beyond those important details, the one thing that stands out to me is that our guy is comfortable in rural America and blends into the landscape of a normal day. Right. He's unafraid to roll up on a girl in the middle of the day and either grab her forcibly or talk her into his vehicle somehow. You know, the man with the candy or puppy scenario, metaphorically. That's what we're talking about here. Totally. And he's getting them into the van or he's getting them away from their safe space without anybody seeing, without any noise, not a scream, not a trace, nothing. For some reason, he's trusted. Mm -hmm. And look, when you know the guy's name and you look him up, I mean, he is not a guy that looks very trustworthy to me. (laughs) But who am I to judge? This might all sound like we've been watching too much Netflix or listening to too many true crime podcasts. Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) 
Or you might think profiling is junk forensic science. But I think Catherine's point, and certainly mine, is that guesswork and profiling is about all law enforcement has to go on in these three missing murder cases at this time. And when you have families hurting, being tortured by all of this, not to mention the emotional toll on law enforcement, as an investigator, you're going to grasp at any straw you think can develop into something. But when you're faced with a brick wall in any investigation and you've tried climbing over it to no avail, you wait and you hope for some good luck, some break in the case. You pray like hell that somebody calls or your guy makes a mistake. And you understand you are facing a ticking clock, wondering where and when he will strike next. And here, that break finally comes in the form of the perp making a mistake. And thank God he does. Thank goodness for sloppy mistakes. We love it. We do. And if law enforcement is on the ball, they see it. I've said this before on our Crossing the Line episode on Israel Keys. After a long run of abducting and killing in the most devious, methodical ways, these guys allow the compulsion to abduct, to overtake them, and dictate their behavior. They allow desire to command what they do next. I'm of the school of thought that when we hear of something like what happens next in this episode, it's extra chilling because for me, a guy who makes this type of a mistake, he's at the tail end of a long, long run of abducting and killing. He's not at the beginning. So you can catch him for one murder, sure, but you understand there are likely dozens of victims in his past. I think that's a really interesting point because it's almost like sort of the thing that gets them caught and shows that they're the guy who did this crime points to all the similar victims that they've had in the past. Most definitely it does. And yes, we've caught them. But geez, if you're making that kind of mistake, you're tired. Yeah. You know? 11 months later, on October 22nd, 1994, in Georgetown, Illinois, not too far from where Jessica Roach was abducted off her bike, two girls are walking down the street. Again, middle of the day. And they sense they are being followed by a creepy dude in a white van. I mean, does it get any more cliche than a serial killer in a white van? I will say that serial killers... have given white vans a bad name for so long now that I need to clear this shit up here. Because a majority of them, believe it or not, do not drive around in vans. So let's just be clear on that. Phelps, how can I believe that after what you just told me? (laughs) This is the anomaly in it all. Serial killers do not drive around in white vans. Except for this one. (laughs) Except for this one. Right? Some drive Volkswagens. Uh, right, exactly, exactly. Okay, others drive ice cream trucks. Mm-hmm. But most drive around in, say, a beat-up pickup that's got tool racks on the side, dents all over it, and garbage. Like, inside the cab, there's just, like, they're hoarding garbage. Garbage everywhere. That's... Yeah, or like in our Murder in Illinois episode, a Hyundai Astra. The dude in this particular white van who has these distinctive bushy mutton-chop sideburns, black hair, a chubby face, and a real southern droll, does not get out of his van. But the girls trust their guts, and they run. 
He catches up to them and yells out the window, asking why they're running and if they'd like a ride. Yeah. You know, why are you running away from some sleaze bag with mutton chop sideburns following you in a white van? Why would two young girls ever do that? It's beyond him. Yeah. Clearly, the answer is no. They continue to run and are so spooked by the sight of this guy, they find a house and call the police immediately. Smart kids, because you know what they also get? Not murdered. (laughs) They get his license plate number. Yes! I love it. With that, let's take a quick break. Come right back. remember the names uh like 89 to 92 something like that or 93 would it be possible to find a a girl's name from a missing from a certain town around eight years old she was she was missing from a there's a lake north of there and she was missing from that lake as i remember it's been a long time since i was there okay So that is the voice of the guy who is about to be arrested in connection with stalking and spooking those two girls walking in Georgetown, Illinois. His name is Larry Dwayne Hall. Those mutton chop sideburns, which the girls reported, well, Larry has grown them because he's a Civil War buff and performs throughout the Midwest and South in those Civil War reenactments. Okay, so I have to tell you, I had a neighbor who would do Civil War reenactments growing up. Was his name Larry? His name was not Larry, but I'm like sort of wondering if maybe they knew each other because he definitely did them in the Midwest in the 90s. We grew up next to each other. And when he was little, he was my older brother's age. So he was maybe in his teens when I was like a little kid. When he had been a little kid, he had been through an accident where he lost one of his legs. And he got really into these Civil War reenactments, and he was kind of one of the stars of the show because back then, tons of people would have lost legs. So he was very authentic and sort of fit into this crowd in this way where they're like, oh my gosh, you're sort of perfect for this because he... He had the limp. Well, yeah, because he, when he would take off his prosthetic leg for these reenactments and just go, you know, wandering around with a, a stick, I guess, under one arm to like help him walk. But yeah, good job, Mark. So he was a star. He was an A-lister. He was he was an A-lister. He was a, he was a Civil War yes. reenactor A-lister. Which I'm sure Larry Hall was too with his mutton chop sideburns. But I think Larry Hall kind of just blended in. What he wanted to do is just blend in with the yep. troops. Yeah, that sounds right. And being a Civil War reenactor, and you might have guessed this, it means Larry Hall is driving all over a large section of the country, roaming around in his serial killer white van, stalking and searching for his next victim. Thanks to some quick on their feet thinking and unapologetic action, those two heroic kids saved countless future lives after running from creepy Larry, the reenactor, and calling the police after getting his license plate number. And I'll tell you that they saved the lives with that call. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, this is Larry Hall that we're talking about, which is the killer from that new Apple TV true crime drama, Blackbird. Paul Walter Hauser, he's from Itania. Everything you see him in, he steals the show, but he plays Larry Hall and his performance. Of course, you've got Taron Edgerton in there to like be hot and bring abs, but Paul is in there 
surprising you, this super detailed performance, very nuanced, incredible. So good. And, you know, you've heard Larry by now in this episode, and you recognize Larry, how <laughs> how he talks like that. This is his real voice. I challenge if it's his real voice or not. Yeah? You think I, it's yeah. like a put-on? Uh, well, as we get into this episode, you'll, you'll understand what I mean, I think, a little bit more. Okay. So I teamed with a source of mine and convinced Larry to talk with her. He wouldn't talk to me, but a woman, he opened right up to her. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're hearing. You're hearing her conversations with him that I had her record. Excellent. It's now November 2nd, 1994, getting back into our timeline, close to two weeks after those girls report lunatic Larry stalking them. Vermilion County Sheriff's Investigator Gary Miller heads out to Larry's home in Wabash, Indiana. Wabash is about a 2.5-hour drive from Georgetown. Larry confirms he pulled over and spoke to the girls, but says in his best good old boy voice, Oh, no, you got it all wrong. I was just asking directions and didn't mean anything more than that. I wasn't intending on hurting the girls. And in the immortal words of Karen Kilgariff, adults don't need help from children. It's like, sure, Larry, you were just out cruising around in your dirty white serial killer van, hours away from home, middle of the day. You saw two girls walking and you decided then and there to ask for directions. Since the day the two girls reported Larry and the investigator drove to Larry's home, a bit more investigating is done behind the scenes, but now with a purpose to see if what the girls reported matched anything being reported elsewhere. And kaboom, cue torrential downpour and the floodgates busting open here. So they learned that on May 29, 1994, five months before those two girls reported Larry Hall, he'd followed two other teenage girls in Georgetown and actually chased them in his disgusting van. They were on bikes. They pedaled hurriedly and made it to an alleyway and were able to block filthy Larry's van from traffic by hiding behind a truck. Then, get this, reports come in from Marion, Gas City, Logansport, and Perrysville, Indiana. The same gross white van stalking and following teenage girls while they're riding bikes or walking. In the Gas City incident, way back in March 1994, police actually stopped Larry Hall in his van and questioned him on the spot. While searching his van, they uncover a freaking serial killer kit. Knife, mask, bundle of rope, a can of starter fluid, which, you know, could be used to subdue somebody, along with one other interesting item, a missing person flyer with Trisha Reitler's picture on it. Remember Trisha was the student who left campus and never returned from the store. Mm -hmm. In the United States v. Hall appeal document I obtained, it claims that Larry Hall was questioned about Trisha extensively on the spot after being stopped. But, quote, the police learned nothing from Hall that led them to believe he was involved in Reitler's disappearance, end quote. So, uh, they let him go? 10-4 there, Captain Law. (laughs) 
10-4, Captain Law. <laughs> That's a WTF moment. And yet, in defense of law enforcement, they didn't have much to hold him on then. So they let him go and allegedly kept him on their radar. Mm-hmm. Apparently, however, they had technical problems with that radar system. <laughs> I'll just say. <laughs> like, wait, an actual radar? I literally thought you were being 100% serious. Oh, wait a minute. Well, gotcha. whoa. You thought I was being serious? Like they had a serial killer radar system that they had in the <laughs> like a bat cave? Yes, I did. I was like, wait, do you mean an actual radar? But now I hear your delivery. I was speaking in metaphors there, Captain Law. I was speaking in metaphors. <sighs> okay, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. I think my audience there was with me too on that. I, I, I'm not not sure they weren't. <laughs> oh my god! First, let's take a step back and find out who Larry D. Wayne Hall actually is. So, lunatic Larry and his twin brother Gary were born and raised in Wabash, Indiana. Their dad was a sexton who uh, <clears throat> dug graves for a living. Wow. Yeah, someone's got to do it, right? There, there we go. Yeah. There are some claims out there that insist Larry was forced by dad to dig up and rebury bodies. But you know what? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I mean, unless I have corroborating evidence on that, I'm, I'm going to say that Larry added that later. Mm. And let me just say this. Larry was stupid. If you haven't realized that listening to him, let me just say that I mean that quite literally. From the time he was in elementary school, Larry scored very low on IQ tests. He became antisocial, and because he was often picked on for being so stupid, he began to develop a hatred for other human beings and society as a whole. Totally. So one of the things that they said in Blackbird, and I tried to look this up, I there was no way to figure out whether it was real or not, but they talked about this twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, which is where one of the twins takes all of the nutrients of the other twin. And so one of them winds up being strong and the other one's not. Like Gary Hall is very like athletic and better looking and smarter than Larry. And they actually use this phrase, he drank me in the womb, which is maybe one of the most horrible things I've ever heard. But continue, Phelps. Yeah, I'm going to reserve comment on that because it sounds to me like a little bit of dramatic license. So he also had a speech impediment and was said to be a bedwetter. He liked to start fires and commit petty crimes. You see where this is heading? Mm-hmm. I mean, not only do we have the cliche white van, but Larry seems to fit into the mold of a textbook serial killer's life, which a majority of serial killers, I hate to clarify for everybody, do not fit into. The average Joe serial killer just is not who we portray in the media and Hollywood's sensationalized version of the serial killer. So this leads me to believe maybe that Larry Hall made all this shit up because that's what he saw on TV. Oh, that's actually a really good point. So he's sort of becoming this idealized version of what he imagines a serial killer to be. And he would imagine a serial killer to be like uh, the Joker. That's what he would imagine, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. He did like reenactments after all. Larry latched on to those Civil War reenactments, I reckon, to become somebody else, to fight back at those bullies, and to create an alibi for himself for so much traveling (laughs) and stalking. Okay? Yeah. 
That's why he did it. Those reenactments he took part in are basically a roadmap to where girls went missing year after year after year after year. I'm also realizing that neighbor that I mentioned who did Civil War reenactments, he would have been doing these in the early 90s in, I'm sure, the same places in the Midwest that Larry Hall was. So I'm going to have to reach out to him. Small group. I mean, this yeah. is not like, you know. It's not thousands of people. It's maybe 100 guys. I mean, this isn't the Boy Scouts. Larry's victims number anywhere between 30 to 50 total women, maybe even more. And they range in age from like 8 to 35 and even older. He was a serial stalker like that of which I have rarely encountered in my work. He drove around the countryside like a predator, an alligator in a swamp, waiting for that opportunity to strike at that deer drinking the water. That was Larry Hall. As you can hear in these tapes I have, as you can hear in these tapes that I have been playing... (laughs) He is soft-spoken. He comes across like a good old country bumpkin who seems unsure and very simple. Mm -hmm. But it's the pauses when he speaks that tell me a lot about who Larry Hall really is. When lunatic Larry pauses, that silence indicates to me thoughts going on in his head. He's trying to recall and he's trying to think of the best answer to give. That's what he's doing. Now, I want to go back to those tapes of Larry Hall, where he is speaking from the federal prison where he was at the time. The other girl I was thinking of was that Debbie. She's from Lebanon, Indiana. She was a friend of mine. Uh, Steve's a uh, friend of mine named Steve knew her. She was a she was only twelve years old. She was missing too. That is Deborah Cole. Larry is talking about who you are going to hear all about in part two of my lunatic Larry Dwayne Hall episode. Next week, you'll hear him ignorantly seem to be so confused, but also intently preoccupied with Deborah Cole. And you'll also hear him blame her disappearance and murder on a, quote, friend, end quote, of his. Thanks for listening this week. And take a moment and give the show a five-star review. That's really your only option when you click on this show is five star. Remember, be safe, be aware. See you next week for the conclusion of Larry Dwayne Hall. Sources for today's episode come from The State versus Hall, Supreme Court of South Carolina, FBI.gov, Lori Jean Deppis, Menasha, Wisconsin, charlieproject.org, Lori Jean Deppis Page, Family Remembers Jessica Roach with Scholarship Memorial, Noelle McGree, April 22, 2014, The News Gazette, Larry Dwayne Hall, Department of Psychology, Radford University, Research by Brittany Begley, Casey Frith, and Kari Elliott. Phelps wishes to thank Jennifer Bland for making the recordings with Larry Hall possible. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.